Welcome back to the show. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance here with you for an extended edition of Canucks Hour, just one day ahead of the NHL draft. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, avenuemachinery.ca. Lots of great thoughts coming in on JT Miller, Bo Horvat, everything going on surrounding the Vancouver Canucks right now. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. We'll get back into all of that. I also want to discuss the draft-specific side of things. Yeah, the Canucks, hey, they're picking 15th overall. They're picking in the first round uh, as things stand right now for the first time in a while. So I want to talk about that process. But first... Two of the Canucks assistant general managers have uh, spoken to the media today. Patrick Alvin will speak a little bit later, and you'll be able to hear that audio here on 650 as well. But I wanted to play first Cami Granato, who spoke uh, before our show today, had some really interesting things to say on a wide range of issues, but specifically how this front office is coming together, what the process has looked like leading up to this draft. We'll uh, we'll get into that on the other side, but first, here is Canucks Assistant General Manager, Cammy Granato. With Gemma Carson-Smith, Canadian Press. Hi, Cammy. Thanks so much for doing this today. Um, obviously, this is uh, your first draft. What's the process been like leading up to this for you, from your perspective? It's been really exciting. Um, lots of good conversations, debates, um, a lot of long meetings that are getting us prepped for the players that we want in order that we want and just left a meeting, one of our meetings just now and um, kind of going over our list again and uh, making sure, you know, we have our right order because it's, it's come quick. And one of the unique things about this draft is you're going to be one of five female AGMs on the, on the floor. What's that like for you? What does that say about the state of um, women in hockey? Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. I think, um, you know, there were times I didn't think that was a, a, an option for women, you know, growing up. It just, there was no representation. So it wasn't something that I thought would happen in my lifetime because I've always been the one sort of in that age of like the first of things. And and sometimes those things don't come. And this one was exciting. And it's, it's just, uh, it's neat to see the representation. representation. Um, I think the mindset that, is changing is that women are qualified. It doesn't, I think in before it was like, well, women can't do this job or women aren't qualified. Women don't know hockey, but that's just not true. That's just, you know, biases or myths. And that's, um, you know, as you see, as you mentioned uh, with so many women now representing, uh, you know, those, those maybe biases can change. Um, So it's, it's exciting. We'll move along next to Ian McIntyre, Sportsnet. Hi, Ian. Hi, Cammy. How are you? Great. How are you? Pretty good. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that uh, Jim talked about in building his his team, and you mentioned it as well when you when you joined the Canucks, is this diversity of, of voices and people coming from uh, a different path. I wonder at a time like this, uh, how diverse the conversations are when you're talking about, say, JT Miller or or who to pick first is, is there pretty lively uh, discussion and at times disagreement in the room about things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everyone's got different opinions. I think that there's um, the one thing with this group is the communication is, is really strong. There's a great respect for one another's opinions. 
we don't all have to be on the same page. And I don't think you want everyone to have the same mind or the same outlook. You want to get different aspects, listen to that side of the arguments and that, and um, or I guess more, more like discussions than arguments. But um, I think the amount of hockey people and hockey minds that, like we mentioned, did come from all different backgrounds and all different sort of opinions, um, it's been really uh, positive. And even in our scouting meetings, you know, the one I just left, the, the, ba- the debates were really healthy. And, and arriving to the player, it was, you know, you had to hash that out for a while, think about it. And then, you know, who goes first in, in order. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a really good way to get to the process is by, you know, hearing everyone's opinions, respecting them, and then kind of taking that information and then, and then deciding. Okay. And I'd like to ask you one question about this awful Hockey Canada story. And I know this is probably not the most comfortable forum in which to have this conversation. But we have seen so much uh, progression in the NHL. Uh, Gemma mentioned, you know, five uh, women who are now assistant general managers. And a year ago, there, there were none. I, I'm just wondering from your perspective as, as uh, a woman who works in senior management in hockey, what was, what was your reaction when you heard about this story? Oh, obviously very disturbing. Um, I just know for us in the hockey world, we need to be better um with these kind of things and how we handle them and understand that um you know that's it's not acceptable um and it shouldn't happen so there need yeah we just we just need to be better at this um and the way we look the way and how we look at these these issues instead of brushing them under the rug they need to be dealt with we'll go next to patrick johnson post media Hi, hi, Cammie. Um, thanks for touching on that. That was something I was wondering about. Um, if we can pivot back to your development job, in the hirings you guys made and bringing the CDs in, was there an overall focus that you saw in terms of player development um, that you were trying to highlight in, in how are you putting this department together? Well, I think in general, it, we needed more more people involved in our development program. We had we were a little bit light as far as our numbers of, of coaches and um Chris Higgins and Ryan Johnson, you know, we're doing a fabulous job, but need more, need more people um, on board to help uh, grow and, and develop. Um, you just have more bodies and more people and more minds. Um, so that the hires we made, we're really, really excited about some great, um, you know, some great guys that we brought on and uh, had some really great discussions looking forward to our, our, um, our development camp, which, which happens right after we get back, obviously from the draft and, uh, get to sit with those guys for the first time in person. And uh, there's a lot of really good energy going on and a lot of great uh, conversations, uh, developing some of our, you know, the way, the direction that we want to go. Um, and that's, that's really exciting because we just, it's new, like this, this whole group is new and everyone's really uh, charged up to go. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to next week and, and just in the future having, you know, guys like Henrik and Daniel, um, join it as well. I mean, you can't get better guys as far as, you know, what they know, you know, their hockey, their hockey minds, um, who they are as people, their character, their, their work ethic. Um, I, those things they can instill in these young players, as well as the guys that we have that we hired, um, Michael Samuelson, uh, Mike Commissarek, um, we got Chris Higgins, like I mentioned, um, all those guys are going to be uh, so valuable to help our young players develop. And that's something that we really need to do. One, 
something I heard recently from from someone who works on another team was too often he thinks they talk people talk about teams that draft badly and and they don't talk enough about teams that develop that uh, develop badly. Um, I was just curious on your perspective on that. Like the example that was thrown at me, you say it was like Tampa Bay because they just have so many people circulating, talking to players, working at players, skating coaches, all that kind of thing. I was just kind of curious about your your thoughts on that kind of principle. Yeah, I, I think for us, you know, whoever we draft um, and whoever's in our in our pool of, of young players, we're, our goal is to get the best out of every single player, their potential, like get them to get to the highest level that they can get. And that's what our guys are really going to be focused on is every player that we put in our our prospect pool, no matter if they're a first rounder or a seventh rounder, um, you know, these guys are going to be, we want to get them to their potential and we want to support them in their growth. And I think you can do a lot with players that are raw, that come out raw. Um, and, and that's where our group is really excited. The guys that we brought on are, they're, they're chomping at the bit to get going. So um, it should be uh, to really, you know, good to see how it all comes, comes to fruition in the next little while. Next question comes from Farhan Lal, JTSN. Hey, Farhan. Hey, Cammy, how are you? Good. I uh, just want to ask you about, um, from a development perspective, a lot was made about the lost year uh, during COVID. Certainly the NHL got to play in a bubble, but uh, at all other levels, uh, you know, the game virtually disappeared for a long period of time. Now we've had a year to kind of fill in that void. Has it been filled as you see it in the organization, or do you still see the effects of it on players in the development pool? I, I definitely still think we, there, there are some effects of, it. I mean, there were less games played. There were guys that were on taxi squads that didn't get regular seasons. And, you know, it definitely has an effect on it. I think it's, but it's everywhere. It's across the board. So everyone, no one's at an advantage in this way. Um, I just think, you know, maybe there's a little bit more patience or you might have to look at different scenarios and give someone a, a bit of a break there with, they didn't get the, the same sort of um, season that they were, they know, able to play. So it affected players all over the place. So yeah, we're not really looking at that. I think we're more excited that we actually have a regular season. We're getting back to normal. Um, but, but it's definitely a a consideration to know, you know, be a little bit more, um, forgiving and, and, and say that guys maybe had played less or were stuck in a certain place and didn't get the games they needed. So we look, we're, we're not looking at it, but we know it's there. Certainly from uh, from the outside right now, there's been a lot of talk about a, a JT Miller trade, and I'm certainly not going to ask you about the possibility of it. However, uh, if it were to happen, um, you know, it could lead to some changes in the prospect pool, right? Somebody could get added. You could draft in a different spot. As a development group, can you prepare for that, or is it just a case of reacting to whatever comes? I think it's reacting to whatever comes. Um, you know, our guys are, you know, experienced, and, and it's, yeah, it, the guys that you get, you you work with. And I think that's really where it is. Next up is Stephen Wino, Associated Press. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Cammy. Thank you for doing this. Um, obviously, Ian mentioned uh, five uh, women now in, in assistant GM jobs. Uh, Kate Madigan just got promoted to the Devils today. I'm just curious your reaction to that. And just are you surprised how quickly this has happened within the last several months of, of how much hockey has caught up to other sports in hiring women for these positions? Yeah. I am and I'm not. I think that the pendulum is really swinging to sort of add diversity. You've seen it in a lot of different other you know areas, whether it's broadcasting you know, in sport, I'm, I'm saying, and, and in business as well. But um, you've seen a lot of change and, and, and it's more about adapting to understanding that, you know, adding diversity is important uh, and representation. But I do think um, the hires, you know, they're people that are qualified too. So there's 
there's other there's there's naysayers that say oh you're just trying to catch up and you're just heading you know people for to add them but these are qualified people um but i'm not i'm not that surprised um i'm excited about it i think it's really great that the nhl is taking that sort of uh, mindset and, and look towards that to open up the pool um for applicants and for hires um but i you know part of me is isn't surprised at this point but i'm i'm definitely um excited about that opportunity that that women are getting and 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 diversity you know um i think that's great is, is it cool to see uh, so many people like Alex Mandernicki, who you worked with in Seattle, came out again, different paths than, than maybe you you have taken or Megan Dungan's taken. Is it cool to see how many paths are, are kind of opening now? It is. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I think that it's the 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 movement has been quicker uh, in the last few years than it's been in you know 10 years before that. So I think that's that's where it's really the adaptation has been great that that the opportunity can be there for for people like me. Next up is Carol Schramm, Forbes. Hi, Kami. Thanks for doing this. Um, no I wanted to ask you about the draft combine. Um, how advantageous was it to have the opportunity to uh, to meet with a whole bunch of players in person and kind of see what they're all about? And I'm curious if there was anything strategically that you were doing. We always hear about sort of the funny or weird questions you're putting players on the spot. <laughs> and I wonder if there was anything sort of unique that that you guys took uh, into that situation. Um, you know, I think the the combine was great for our group. Um, there was a lot of information that we took from there, from from, from everything from the interviews to to the combine results from strength and um, and yeah. But it's it's definitely something that helped us a lot, and we and we're following through with you know further talking to to players that were interested. In. So I think um, as far as quirkiness, I think we were you know we have our, you have your own you know, catered questions. Um, and you get, it's fun to see the personalities, but, uh, yeah, we get, we, we took a lot from that combine. Excellent. And I also wanted to ask you about your, uh, your first, uh, opportunity with the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame selection committee. Um, I know there's a great shroud of secrecy around a lot of that process, but uh, I just wanted to uh, get your thoughts on, on what that was like and how cool it must have been to see uh, the Sedins and, and Roberto Luongo make the cut for the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it was a really great experience. I had I didn't really know what to expect. I'd kind of gotten a little bit of um, a little bit of background because I know a number of people that are on the committee currently. But going in, um, I did a lot of listening to start, and it was really, uh, I felt honored to be a part of it. Uh, it's a very select group of people, great hockey minds. Um, I have a lot of experience on, on being on the committee. A lot of them have been there for many years, and um, I, I enjoyed it. I soaked it all in. Um, it was really, I don't know, just quite amazing to be able to be in that spot, to be able to vote people in. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously seeing, you know, Henrik and Daniel and, and Roberto was it was a proud day for the Canucks, and I was uh, really really excited about that. We'll go next to Daniel Wagner, Glacier Media. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Cami. Thanks for doing this. Um, okay. When you're looking at the development side, do you have a preferred development path, whether it's college hockey, playing versus men in Europe, or CHL? What are the pros and cons of of those different paths? You know what? I think we're looking at the player. I, I think we definitely look at, you know, where the player is, how they're going to be developed, what league they're in. And, and we look at differences in those leagues and, and sometimes it's advantageous for a player to be somewhere else than, than they are maybe now, or, 
uh, or you're happy about where, you know, the team they're on or the league that they're playing in. But for, for us, it's, it's finding the best players. And so that's really what we look at is, you know, uh, you know, what are, what are our types of players that we want to have in our system and, and we go from there. Um, and we've been hearing some troubling news out of Russia regarding hockey players. Is there any concern uh, about your own players that are Russian and also heading into the draft? Does it change your approach with Russian players? Yeah, that's a, that's a really tough one um, because you don't, there is a, there is a, there's an element of the unknown when you're looking at the draft pool. We've, we've put the Russian players in line of where we think they are, but there is definitely that, you know, those thoughts of, what if um, it's just, it's a really tough situation. Um, it's like, it's like you said, unknown, um, but we're just trying to do the best that we can here and, and make the right decisions. And we're not, there's no conclusion on that at this point. Um, and, and a lot of it, we keep to ourselves anyway at this point, but um, you know, that's where we are. And we'll take one final question here from Rob Simpson, Vancouver hockey now. Hey Rob. Hey Cammy, how are you? Good. Thanks. Just one from me, and that is regarding the uh, adaptability thing that you kind of touched on earlier. So you kind of just said you had these discussions about, you know, picking a player. Um, if you discover later that a team is offering up a pick higher in the, in the draft, and also how you, maybe you stack options in case somebody steals your guy, can you just talk about that process? And also kind of that trading up potential, if that still exists, if something were to occur. Yeah, there's definitely all those scenarios that you play through. Um, we're looking at all of them. Um, if the guy that you're wanting is gone, um, when you get to the to, to where you're drafting, you you know you go to the next guy that you have on the list. So I think for us, um, we have our own strategies. Um, it's really clear direction from from Patrick, uh, from Jim. You know how how we want to run things, and um, we're we're getting as prepared as we can. Uh, for the draft. That is Canucks assistant general manager Cammy Granato speaking earlier today uh, from Montreal to uh, to media, some local media, some national media mixed in there as well about a whole host of topics, including the Canucks preparation for the draft, player development, all of that uh, the, that's part of her profile as the assistant general manager. And uh, as we bring Thomas Drance back in to the conversation here, Drancer, you know, the thing that's kind of jumped out to me and it dovetails nicely with an interesting piece you have up at the athletic right now, which is looking back at some draft list debates or draft room debates of the Canucks that the Canucks have had in previous seasons that have worked out in some cases, very, very well, in some cases, not so well for the team. And, you know, listening to Cameron Ganado talk about that process and what it's like to put the list together and the, the discussions and the importance of healthy debate. You know, I wanted to just spend a little bit of time here talking through what that kind of healthy draft process looks like. And, you know, again, listening to Cameron Ganado there, reading your piece at The Athletic today, I think my big takeaway was we so often focus on scouting, right? Just can you identify the best players? Can you, you know, list players 1 through 15 in the correct order uh, of, of ultimate talent and upside? And obviously, look, it's important to have really great scouts, but there's so much more to the process than just the actual scouting side. And the the work of putting the list together you know, getting all, getting everyone on the same page, having those debates. I think sometimes we don't focus on that as much as we should, because it's ultimately sometimes that process, which really can pay dividends for a team. 
Yeah, and I, I mean, if you go read the piece at the Athletic today, um, you know, I, I thought, I thought, I think it's pretty interesting. One of my favorite nuggets within it is the Quinn Hughes story, right? So you go into the draft process, and you've got Quinn Hughes ranked far higher than he ends up going, right? I think he was third or fourth on the Canucks list. Um, by the time he fell to them at seven, they were giddy on the draft floor. I mean, I remember being on the draft floor and just how excited everyone with the Canucks organization was that they'd nabbed Quinn Hughes. And that's one of those scenarios where the way that the draft plays out in front of you, you know, presents you with such a no-brainer at seven that it's almost like, well, what did the top of your list matter, right? And yet, what I liked about digging into that story was figuring out that Philip Zadina, who who went sixth, wasn't the Canucks' next guy up in a world where the Detroit Red Wings had just selected Quinn Hughes, right? Like, even if Quinn Hughes had gone off the board, the Canucks were going to draft a defenseman, uh, well, or Oliver Wallstrom, and, and the next guy up on their list would have been Noah Dobson, right? So it's like, even... Like, like, you have to be lucky sometimes to get really great players. But you also have to be so set in terms of where your list is at that you're prepared. That even if the Canucks hadn't been blessed by good fortune, by, by the ability to draft Quinn Hughes 7th overall in 2018, they still would have come away with a really good defenseman. Right, like a, a potential franchise level defenseman. Yeah, yeah. no, and, Dobson had fifty one points last year. He, he, <laughs> he, he is really, really good. Really, really good. So you know, I thought that was a fascinating look into why this process is so vital, even when it's not. Oh, it's it, and and to just your point about you know, well, they got lucky that Quinn Hughes fell to them, and yeah, that look, look, that's that's true to they a did. certain extent, but yes. but they you know. There's a, it's not as, you can't, I don't think you can say, oh, well, it was a no-brainer for those other teams to pick uh, Quinn Hughes, because they didn't do it, right? Like, other no. NHL teams looked at the available players and decided to pass. So, yeah, it, it's not, you don't have to say, oh, wow, they saw something in Quinn Hughes that nobody else did. It's not like that, but they made the right decision and other teams didn't. And there was an element of luck that the teams that happened to be in front of them were the ones that didn't make the right decision. So you need to be able to take advantage of that. But yeah, I don't think you can quite call it a no brainer because as I said, other teams passed on a really, really good prospect and the Canucks in that situation were smart enough not to do so. And you know, the other thing that really jumped out to me uh, was your discussion of the Facilipod Colson pick and specifically the, the debate about whether or not to trade down uh, and draft potentially Alex Newhook, potentially uh, Peyton Krebs a little bit later in the first round and pick up a, an additional second rounder in that 2019 draft. And I think the thing that jumped out to me there is just how fine the margins were on that decision at the time and how fine you could kind of still say that they are, right? Like, I think a lot of people would love to have an Alex Newhook in in the prospect system, right? You know, if you're the Canucks, do you, in retrospect, lean a little bit towards the, the trade down option, right? Maybe, but... It's just we tend to kind of think in uh, in absolutes, right? Where oh, it's clear you you have to trade down with this pick, right? You have to trade down, or you have to stay here and get this guy. But the the actual gap in value between those decisions can be so so fine sometimes. Yeah, infinitesimal, and and I think that one's a really interesting example in part because you, I think you'd still take Pod Colson over Newhook and 
Fujimo partly because of how rare his skill set is, right? It's hard to find six foot one, 220 pound guys mm-hmm. as fast and hardworking as he, as Pod Colson is, right? And so, you know, the point though that I think that the, the point that makes that a really interesting debate for me is again, I think as a product of the club having their list kind of locked, right? Of, of having players slotted pretty well means that you really wouldn't have been hooped going in either direction, right? I think the club probably made the right call. I'd rather have Pod Colson than New Hook Plus. But even if you had New Hook Plus, the fact that the club had New Hook slotted appropriately, right? The fact that, um, you know, they would have got a, a player who's at least still a good asset in, um, you know, a, a Fajimo had they decided to trade down. Um, I mean, it sort of leaves them in a it, – it, it's, it's a sign to me that when you get your list right, when you have it on lock, when you have players ranked appropriately, you're insulated, right? When you have that good process, you're insulated so that, you know, whatever tactical decision you decide to make with the pick, you should still come out okay with either, with either a really good player at 10 or two – you know, really intriguing assets a slightly lower down the draft. Yeah, to your point, if they had gone through and traded down there, I don't think we would look back at it as, oh, what a debacle, what a missed opportunity, right? You know, a draft day screw-up because you would still have a really good prospect in Alex Newhook. It, yeah, I, I would lean towards Vasily Podkolzin as well, but it, we're not talking, you know, Ole Levy over Matthew Kachuk if they if they ended up uh, making that move in the kind of, you know, pick that will live in infamy for Canucks fans. Unfortunately, yeah. And and of course we got into that pick too. And you know, I, I see in the comment section people are saying like, wow, like this is such an indictment of um previous management. And you know, the Canucks came out really well. So in all those is drafts. It, I actually with the exception of twenty sixteen, I actually thought I actually thought know, the opposite. It, like reading yeah, through I, it, it's I, like wow, sure. they were doing a really smart job of, of going through the draft process. That that was my I, big takeaway from from, from the article. Never, we're never going to look at that stretch and say that the Canucks performed poorly at the draft table. Like we're never going to, and we never should. And you know, the the fact is is that the process I think was a little suboptimal in 2016, and the results show it. And thereafter, it kind of changed. And for three years, there was some really good work done by all parties involved. Like they were a group that got I think the most out of one another. And that's what you want in, in, a, in a scouting sort of um, like an amateur scouting department. And now we've sort of got new hands at the wheel, as it were. Right. Uh, Derek Clancy, Cami Granado, Patrick Alvin's got an amateur scouting background. I'm sure he's going to be hugely influential in shaping what this 2022 Canucks draft class looks like. And then they've sort of retained Todd Harvey. They've changed some of their amateur scouts, but we haven't seen like a big inflow of new guys yet. And you put it all together and, you you know, if this team can replicate the level of success that the Canucks had in 17, 18 and um, 19, albeit with slightly lower value picks, you know, this club's going to be in a better spot going forward, particularly if they're able to add some draft pick weaponry in some trades perhaps over the next 24 hours and again just to tie it back to my kind of initial point and what you had to say about the process in that span of years 17 18 19 for this team 
I think it really just drives home, you know, it's your your general manager's ability to scout is so much less important than his ability to kind of be an administrator and lead a group of people that include scouts, that include, you know, player development, all of that. That is what's going to drive the best results. And again, you know, very much to Jim ben- Benning's credit, there are stories in your piece about the, the process where maybe he was on one side, but he listened to the people around him and ultimately made the correct decision. And I, I think that's exactly what you want in the draft process from your team and from your general manager, right? Is to have the faith that, yeah, we can go through this process and I, you know, I'm not, I don't have to be right. I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to have my mind change if, if the people around me present a, a compelling enough case. And yeah, the, I, I think it's going to be fascinating, especially after the fact when maybe we get a chance to talk to some of the principals to hear a little bit more about how the new management for the Canucks goes through that process uh, and, and we'll see what the results yield. Uh, this text comes in. Benning is so overrated as a drafter. Just stop it. But that's my point. It, it's not about Benning's ability or wasn't about Benning's ability to identify talent himself. It's more about the GM's ability to listen to all those around him and ultimately make the correct decision. Uh, we'll get into the draft conversation a little bit more. Maybe just have a quick chat about what we're hearing, where the Canucks could be leaning tomorrow at 15. Continue to take your text as well. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Get your thoughts in. Final segment of the show coming up. It's Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Final segment of an extended edition of Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drantz with you uh, up until noon when the guys on the People Show will take over. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit Avenue Machinery. Dot .ca uh, a couple of very interesting guests coming up on the People Show Transfer but I want to take a moment to plug here Brock Besser will join the show in just about an hour's time 12:30 fresh off of signing that 3-year extension with the team uh great chance to hear from Brock Besser chatting with Bick and Rendeep and uh, Sportsnet's very own Jeff Merrick who uh, was making some waves on social media, or at least reports of what Jeff Merrick had to say were making waves on social media earlier today. Some some interesting intel on JT Miller uh, and where things stand with the Vancouver Canucks. Jeff Merrick will be on the show at 2.30, so you're going to want to make sure to stick around and listen to both of those. And, you know, just, uh, just while we're talking about uh, uh, JT Miller, uh, Jim and North Van completely apropos of nothing i'm sure says what are your thoughts on capo caco i know very little about him and you know look i I, i've seen the name out there as a potential centerpiece in a return obviously former second overall pick at the vancouver draft here in 2019 hasn't lived up to that billing you know was part of an effective line for the for the rangers in the playoffs without necessarily racking up the counting stats I, I think for me, Drancer, I would still be in the realm of willing to bet on the upside that made him the number two overall pick. But I also understand, you know, three years in the league now hasn't shown what you necessarily want him to show. I would understand a little bit of trepidation from Canucks fans on that point as well. Yeah, I wouldn't. I think Capocacco's a pretty interesting piece. I, I mean, you know, we're talking about a guy who had what? 18 points in 34 in 43 43. last season, right? So, you know, you extrapolate that over 82, that's 30 
plus like 35 points almost in without significant power play time. Right. I mean, that's really good. Like that's solid uh, scoring rate stuff from uh, the young New York Rangers forward. I, I liked a lot of what I saw from him in the playoffs. I thought there were games where he was New York's one of New York's most effective players, particularly below the circle, uh, particularly on the cycle. I think there's a lot to like in in Kako, a player that I've always been pretty high on. Um, we know that he was a healthy scratch in the last game of, of the New York Rangers playoff run. Uh, I thought that was a, a bizarre decision. And so, you know, with a player like this, whose impacts over the course of his three NHL seasons, he's played almost 2,000 minutes, five on five. Like his impacts have been better than his results. And I always like to bet on a guy like that, especially when they're high pedigree and 21 years old, right? Over time, most likely, your results will catch up to your process. Kako's process has been better than his results. There's a lot to like there. There's a lot to like there, a lot of upside there. I mean, I I think as a centerpiece, that would be honestly ideal. Like, I think he's higher end than what you should reasonably be expecting Miller to return, to be totally honest with you. Well, I think the key is the the idea of upside, right? And I, you know, you some people will have different philosophies on this, but if you're getting, if you're going to trade a player who just scored 99 points for you and has been so crucial to, to your team and your production over the last number of years, look, yeah, obviously you would love to have somebody, you, you know, who can come in and, you know, maybe score 25 goals for you next year or whatever. And hey, maybe Kapokaka could do that if he has a breakout. But I think you just also need to, you need to give yourself some sort of path to ha- to adding an elite talent, to adding that true high-end yeah. talent that you're losing. And it's certainly not a certainty that Kako becomes that, right? You know, he could he could top out as kind of a middle six uh, a player in the NHL, but I think he still is still young enough and has the high enough pedigree that at least you're giving yourself a chance at that kind of elite all-star level player. And I think Again, you kind of have to, or I don't know what to say. I don't want to say have to, but if I was making the JT Miller trade, I would really, really want to get that kind of return back, right? To get at least someone who, an asset that has a chance at turning into a truly elite player. And, you know, smart people can debate what percentage chance Kako has of of actually turning into that, but it's there. It's present. You're not settling for, hey, this guy, you know, he's going to be a really good second liner. There's the ceiling for him to be more than that. Yeah, and, you know, there's also an interesting situation with a player like Kako where his deal's expiring. Like, he's an RFA this summer, right? Um, Obviously won't be too difficult to qualify, but thereafter, you know, I think there's a real opportunity. Like, if you believe that Kako's results will catch up to some of the underlying numbers, some of the underlying impacts that he's had in his NHL career to this point, um, the fact that his production's low... If you believe in the player, like, excuse me, wow, I really went Simpsons like, uh, (laughs) Um, if you believe in the player, right, there's a meaningful opportunity to compound the bet. Like, you could buy low in terms of his next contract, right? Structure something out that's maybe a little bit longer uh, that, you know, you'd you'd take on some risk, obviously, that he's not uh, capable of living up to it, but but you could potentially lock in significant upside if he does hit significantly, right? So, I mean, he's got four years left 
prior to um, unrestricted free agency, but would you consider doing something like a six-year deal if you could lock it in at three and a half or four million with the with the chance of paying off and being this you know hugely valuable piece in some of you know what you hope is this core group's best years? Uh, that to me would be a really interesting proposition to consider as as one of the moving pieces that could maybe who knows but potentially be involved in a hypothetical JT Miller <laughs> trade a lot of qualifiers but, a lot you know, that's of qualifiers a lot of qualifiers um yes that's where we're at we're we're, we're not uh, we're not saying it's going to happen we're just discussing what it, what it would be like and what we might say about it if, if it does happen at some point down the road but to your point you know look what i was just saying was you got to chase upside right in a JT Miller deal and Kako has that. And I think the point about an extension is a really good one because that is that is a another way to pursue that upside, right? Be, by by take making a big bet. And yeah, there'd be a lot of downside risk on his on it as well. But if it hits, like if you believe that Kako still has that kind of second overall level ceiling and you're able to lock him up long term before the production has really come, and I you know, what do we always look at as the most team-friendly contract in the NHL? It's the Nathan McKinnon deal. Now, I'm not saying he's going to be Nathan McKinnon, obviously, but my point is they were able to sign that deal at a moment where McKinnon's production had dipped, right? That's kind of the dream scenario for a lot of NHL teams. Hey, we've got this guy we believe in who can have elite production down the road, but it hasn't just happened yet. We're going to strike while the iron is hot. It's an interesting way of looking at it because it's not just about the quality of the player. It's also the contractual situation and your opportunity to kind of double down on that bat and really realize that surplus value down the road. Exactly. And so, you know, that would be, for me, that would be a really intriguing um, return. If, if that was on the table, I, I would, I would sort of look at that as a best case scenario. You know, honestly, like I would prefer to see the club get an upside piece like that back as opposed to a guy that I think tops out as a second pair defender, uh, like a Braden Schneider, even though, you know, the right-handed thing, the f- the physical authoritative young defenseman thing, uh, obviously makes makes Schneider the apple of a, of a lot of people's eyes in in this league, but also among Vancouver Canucks, like the hardcore Canucks fans that you know pour over the Rangers cap friendly page trying to come up with. Uh, perspective hypothetical deals uh coquitlam uh justin texts in hey guys a lot of talk about miller for a forward are we not more in need of a good young defenseman and yeah you can look at what the canucks have coming what's currently on the roster and say the biggest need is another really high-end quality young defenseman potentially on the right side to play with quinn hughes but is that going to be on the table right like like in if you had two offers on the table and one was you know, a young defenseman with a lead upside and one was a young winger with a lead upside. Yeah, I would lean towards the young defenseman with a lead upside. But the more important thing than positional uh, value to me is that upside, the active upside, upside, all else being equal. Yeah, you want the defenseman. I get that. But I think the most important thing is to get the player that could be, you know, a high end piece of your lineup down the road. This text comes in as well. You can't trade your best player, the best power forward on your team, who is also a center uh, for in the game. Well, I mean, uh, let's let's pump the brakes a little bit there on JT Miller for a maybe. Someone elite has to be coming back. It would be absurd to trade for maybes as a core part of a trade return. But I don't think you're getting somebody that's, who's an elite producer back right now, right? Like yeah. inherent in the in the idea of trading a player like JT Miller is you're losing an elite, an elite player now 
because you're getting potential down the road. You're not going to swap them for a guy who's in his prime and currently producing at an elite rate. No, I mean, there's no sure bets when you're trading for younger players. I mean, that's that's kind of how it is. You, you, you have to do your best. If cap space is part of the goal, right, if you're not taking back a significant salary or a significant player, if it's not a significant player for player type deal, then that's kind of what you're locked into a deal looking like you're taking on risk in making that trade. Of course, you're also taking on risk if you're not, right? I mean, Miller in particular profiles as a guy whose performance vacillates, right? Like extending him is a huge risk too. There's no risk-free outcome here, Uh, no matter what, no matter what a return looks like, no matter what an extension looks like. There is no risk-free outcome. Um, Now, as for the defender versus wing thing, without question, Vancouver's sort of biggest long-term priority and it's not just this offseason. It's like a project that this front office is going to be working on over a multitude of years is rebuilding the right side of the defense. I mean, we all know it. It's no secret. It's not rocket science. But actually getting it done is not easy. And I think there's an awareness that it might take more than this offseason to accomplish, frankly. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure the club's first choice return would be a young defender under the age of 25 who they can look at as filling a clear organizational hole on the right side of their defense long-term. And yet, you know, at some point, you just need to do the best deal you can do. And when it, when it comes to a guy with Kako-like upside, I do think that sort of throws positional need out the window a bit. If you can lock in a return like that, I, I mean, I think that's more appealing, frankly. Than, than a player who's on the back of a napkin, a better fit in your depth chart. Well, I think it comes down to a debate we have a lot in terms of drafting prospects, right? You know, best player available versus positional fit. How much of an upside knock are you willing to take or a decrease in upside are you willing to take just to make sure you get uh, a defenseman instead of a forward, right? For me, I, I would not be willing to significantly sacrifice the upside of the guy coming back just because they play defense, right? Again, in a perfect Agreed. world, yeah, exactly. yeah, you lock in, you get that young, cost-controlled player that you can lock into, and they're the perfect fit for Quinn Hughes, and they give you all sorts of upside. I completely understand that, but I don't think you can leave a better player with, with more elite potential on the table just to make sure you get a defenseman in the same way you wouldn't do it at the draft. And I, and I think we all kind of intuitively understand that. Hey, hold on. If there's a winger at 15, yeah, we need a defenseman. Yeah, we need a center. But if there's a winger who's, whose profile is better than any of those players, you still have to do it. I think the same thing applies here. It's just an, it's another avenue of acquiring young players. And when you're in the Canucks position, that upside, that potential has to be top of mind here. I, I, don't, I don't think it's much different than the same types of debates we have around the draft. Yeah, well, and... and- The draft thing in particular, I think it's worth just dwelling on this for two seconds, right? Especially because the Canucks are picking in the first round. Should I mean, they have to pick in the first round for the first time since 2019 in the the next week. Whether it's at 15 or elsewhere, they need a first round pick this year. It's it's a desperate need to add some high-end prospects to this club's pipeline. And, you know... Teams talk a lot about building through the draft sometimes, and it's just not how it works. You don't really build a team through the draft. You can build a core through the draft, but the draft takes too long to deliver talent for it to be a reliable method of filling out your roster, right? If you're if you're thinking about building through the draft, you start to think about things like, well, 
you know, do we need to add some size draft class or, um, you know, well, we have an organizational need here and then you don't take the best player available. You have to look at the draft as an opportunity to harvest value into your organization. That's it. That's the whole exercise. And that's why best player available makes sense because not all of these guys are going to hit, but you want to take your best swings at guys that could pay off in a major way because that's the way, like, those are the pieces that you're then able to trade for value, trade for more picks, trade to a team that's, you know, can't extend a guy like a JT Miller. I mean, those are the types of assets you need, the type of weaponry you need to improve your team, no matter what stage of your team building cycle you're in. The draft is a method to add value, and that's why the best player available thing needs to reign. And it can't just be something you say publicly. It needs to be philosophical at at every level of your process in my view if you're going to take full advantage of the draft device in terms of grafting that you know that sort of heft into your um you know (laughs) into your holster as it were as an organization yeah and i think that's why as much as we talk about the need for centers in the pipeline and the need for defensemen in the pipeline I wouldn't be surprised at all if if the Canucks step up tomorrow night in Montreal at 15 or, you know, who knows, wherever else they end up picking in the first round and pick, you know, a Liam Ogren on the wing or somebody else who they really like who plays on the wing. Because, as you said, you have to be able to have that discipline. And I think especially when you're... When you're taking over, and this is going to be Patrick Alvin's first draft as a general manager, obviously his first draft as the Canucks GM, I think you kind of, there's an extra little impetus to really hit a home run on that draft pick, right? I'm not sure you want to be leaving talent on the table just to kind of fill in a gap in a in a, a prospect pipeline that you inherited when you're stepping up and making your first pick in that position. I mean, I think there's always, obviously always you want to hit a home run with your first round pick, but you know, I, I think especially in this situation for Patrick Alvin, if if you come home with a with an elite player, I don't think people are going to care what uh, you know a player who develops into an elite player at least in a couple of years. I don't think people are going to care that he's a left winger and and not a center. People are just going to be really really thrilled that you nailed that pick. And as you said, it opens up all of these different avenues down the road uh, as well that you could potentially explore. So I, I get it. Look, hey, you know people people want to to see that stud defenseman. People want to see that stud center in the uh, in the prospect pipeline. I completely understand that. And hey, if that's how your draft board shakes out and one of them's available at 15 and it fits that, awesome. Great. You do it happily. Uh, but as you say, Drancher, you got to be able to stick to your guns when it comes to best player available as well. Uh, Drancer, we'll, uh, we'll let you get out and uh, continue to have some fun in Montreal. Get, give the voice a oh, little no, bit of I'll a rest ahead now. of tomorrow. I'll work now. Yeah, I'll have some tea. <laughs> I'll have some tea. It's all work now. And uh, I'm I'm running off to Alvin's availability. There we go. Uh, and I'll and I'll send that audio back for you, Jamie. Thank you, so you guys. Uh, you guys enjoy and have a great day. And and we'll chat again tomorrow when perhaps even more. We will is see moving in the lead up to draft. Night. We will see. I'm looking forward to it. Don't forget Brock Besser on at 12:30. Jeff Merrick at 2.30. Both of those on The People Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda. You do not want to miss it. Keep it blocked right here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.